Today we're going to get the big picture of Revelation. And if you've ever looked at uh, the beginning of this book, by the way, there is actually a fuller title for the name of this book. And it's given in the very first line, verse 1 of chapter 1. Actually, this book is called The Revelation, and it's a revelation, a revealing of a person. It is the revelation of Jesus Christ. So if we miss Jesus Christ, as you look at this book, then you've missed the whole point of the book. All right. So I hope, I hope we can finish this year, 2015, thinking of Jesus Christ. It's, to me, I can't think of a greater way to have the farewell to 2015. But let me ask you this question to, to start with. Have you been disappointed when you get what you want? I would imagine there's been millions of people. We just had Christmas, right? I, bet, I would imagine there's been millions of people who have been disappointed when they got what they want, right? That's just, yeah. I think God's purposely designed this temporal stuff of this earth, frankly, so that we are disappointed with it. If, if you are not disappointed with the temporal things of this life, then we have a problem. We have a massive problem. It's, and, and really, it would be idolatry for us to, to be satisfied with anything other than God himself. Well, what we're going to see in the book of Revelation here is that that is not the case in the future. When we actually get what we want as Christians... Hopefully that's that's God, heaven, and, and all the blessings that come with that, uh, the sin of uh, the curse of sin removed. When we finally get that, you will be satisfied. You will not be disappointed. And we have a number of wonderful images as we go through this book. I just want to point these out. This is a big picture. We don't have time to to, to get into detail, really, a lot of the very interesting stuff in this book. But we do want to see Jesus Christ, because this is the revelation of Jesus Christ. Let's start here in chapter 4. Chapter 4 gives us the image of a throne. We have a throne. This is the center of the entire universe. This is where, if you will, I know God's omnipresent. He is all everywhere present at the same time. But there is this, there is this sense, this is his special place his throne where he rules from. And by the way, the, the picture on the screen there is a is a uh, uh, someone's drawing that I have I have sitting on my desk. It helps to remind me of what is important. As I live in this temporal world, I want my heart to be set, my affection set on things above and not on the earth. So this is this is one that's right next to my computer that I look at all the time. That is the throne room. That is what we see here in Revelation chapter 4. So turn to Revelation 4, and let's that's, that's answer this question of who is the one on the throne. Revelation 4, verse 1. And this is John, the Apostle John speaking. He's, he's an old man. He's, this is probably somewhere around the year 95. And he, he has this wonderful vision, and he says this. After this I looked, and behold, the door standing open heaven, and the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, the throne stood in heaven, with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Let's just stop there for a moment. Not, not a lot of information given about the one who is on the throne. We, we will look a little bit more about this one. We'll see more about this later. Uh, so at, at this point, the Bible is not giving us a whole lot of information. Uh, poor John, he's trying to describe the indescribable with finite human words. How can you possibly comprehend God? How can you describe God? How can you describe this amazing scene? That picture doesn't even do it justice. It couldn't, it could never do it. But anyway, he's, 
poor guy's trying through the power of the Holy Spirit here to give us some information. But there is some, some things we see here in this scene of the throne room. So what is the scene around the throne? Well, let's read on. Verse 4. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders, clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder, and before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And Before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature, like a lion. The second living creature, like an ox. The third living creature, with the face of a man. And the fourth living creature, like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within, And day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. It's an amazing scene there around the throne of God. What's the point of all of those images? Well, we we could get caught up in, in the amazing detail here, but let's not lose sight of the big picture here. What's the point? It's showing the splendor of the one who sits on the throne. The, the, the point of all this is not to be amazed at the four living creatures or the 24 elders and, and the richness and the beauty of the place. The center is the one who sits on the throne. Well, since the Bible talks about these four living creatures, let's quickly talk about them. Who or what are these four living creatures? Well... <clears throat> There's, there's one word in your text, I hope it's in your text, that should help you to understand what they are. There's a word like, at least in my Bible, you'll see the word like. That tells you that this is figurative language. It doesn't, doesn't mean that literally they were like this, but they were like this. Does that make sense? It shows it's figurative language. Some people think, the, by the way, these four living creatures are some sort of a cross between the cherubim angels you see in Ezekiel and the seraphim angels that we see in Isaiah. So you'll see similar descriptions between those two groups of angels. I'm not sure exactly. But whatever those they are, the impression that those four living creatures make is clear, I hope, that even beings as, as magnificent as those four living creatures are given over entirely. Their entire being and life is entirely given over to the worship of the most magnificent being in the universe, is God, the one who sits on the throne. And so their worship, notice, by the way, is also day and night. It's it's an entire life worship. It, It doesn't stop. Well, then John goes to describe these 24 elders... What exactly does that look like? I'm not sure. There's one someone's painting of what that might look like. But look at verse 9. Verse 9. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to Him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before Him who is seated on the throne and worship Him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, O Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things. By your will they created and were created. So again, same as the four living creatures, their purpose for existence is to draw attention not to themselves, but to the one who sits on the throne. And by the way, that's why the elders here are falling down. A very common scene, by the way, whenever someone sees God and comes before His presence, they're falling down. They they fall toward the throne, toward the one who is on the throne. They're casting their honor to that one who is on the throne, 
which of course is God himself. I don't know if you've ever seen the, the really old version of The Wizard of Oz. I've seen it so many times I couldn't begin to tell you how many times I've seen it. But there's an interesting scene toward The Wizard of Oz. You'll see here, maybe if you've seen the movie, I'm curious, how many of you have seen it? So you know what I'm talking about. You've seen this scene where Dorothy and the, the lion and the tin man and, and the scarecrow, they finally make it to, to Oz and they come before this, this Wizard of Oz and he looks all big, mighty, and powerful, and there's, you know, the special effects fire going off there, as you can see. And, and he sounds really big and important and powerful and so forth. But it's, it's, it's funny because Dorothy's little dog, Toto, goes and opens the curtain, and behind the curtain is a man. And he's pushing buttons and pulling levers, and he's, he's the one doing all these the fire in this big, powerful voice, and he says, never mind that man behind the curtain. <laughs> it's quite a funny scene. But he's the, he's the real wizard of Oz, not the, the, the one that's really impressive. And I, I'm just kind of using that, that scene because some people might look at the book of Revelation and they think, well, I, I wonder if I'm going to be disappointed when I get to heaven. You know, I actually get to see this, this, this magnificent place, the throne room of heaven. Am I going to be disappointed? Am I going to be like, you know, Dorothy, who finally gets to see the Wizard of Oz? Well, it's not going to be the case. Because there's no little man standing behind a curtain at the throne room pushing buttons and pulling levers. Oh, no. What we have here is we have elders who are falling on their faces before this one. We have four living creatures who are worshiping God all the time. That's what reality is. Well, let's move on to answer the question then, what is happening around the throne? Well, we come now into chapter 5. We get more information of what is happening around the throne. And the action here begins to happen when this scroll comes into the throne room of God... So let's have a look, chapter 5, verse 1. Chapter 5, verse 1. By the way, you'll notice on the screen here a picture of a scroll with seven seals. A seal in Bible times was made of wax, and they would uh, typically, some someone who had authority would press their ring, their signet ring, into the melted wax. And that's what we have here. Chapter 5, verse 1. Then I saw on the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly, because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And we come, by the way, into the majority of the revelation of Jesus Christ, chapter 6 all the way through 20, is, is really the revealing. Jesus Christ reveals to all of creation, to the throne there of heaven, what is in the scroll. And so we watch as these seven seals are opened, and, and all the effects within that scroll follow one by one. And so the scroll, in some way or another, seems to be a document, and upon this document is written the rest of history, of human history. If you will, it contains God's decrees. It contains God's judgments that we see in, in chapter 6 through 19. God is the sovereign king, the one who controls history and he has authority over it. And this scroll is sealed so that none could see it. And that's why John is, is weeping. He's crying. 
he, he probably wanted to see it. He wants to know. He's trying to understand this amazing scene. And, and here's, my, here's the point, I think. Don't miss this as you look at this amazing scene. I'll put it on the screen here for you. That God alone deserves our worship and trust. God alone deserves your worship and trust. And so it's important for us to remember as we finish out this year that at the center of history is not an impersonal chemical reaction like most New Zealanders are taught in the public schools. See here, the Bible says at the center of the universe is not chance, it's not randomness, but we have a throne. And on that throne, there's a sovereign God, there is a supreme ruler of this universe who rules the entire universe. He reigns supreme over all of his creation. And you and I are called to trust in nothing other than the God who is on this throne. So let me ask you this. What can you trust God for? You should trust God, but let's talk about some specific things today as we look at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Let's look at some specifics of what can we trust in. And here's the first one. You can trust God for his perfect rule. You can trust God for his perfect rule. You see, he's the amazing God who reigns supreme over the entire universe, but yet he also knows how many hairs are on your head. He knows when the bird falls out of the nest on the ground. He takes care of the flowers and the lilies of the field and the grass and everything else. And in Matthew chapter 6, he says, don't worry, trust me, because I'm in control. So God alone deserves our worship and trust. And then we come to the, the uh, next scene. Remember, the scroll is opened. What do we see next in the majority part of Revelation? It's, it's, it's mainly about God's judgment. So beginning in chapter 6, the Lamb begins to open the seals of the scroll one by one. And when he does, this vision of God's court gives way to judgment. There's a lot of horrible stuff that takes place that God has decreed here for the earth and the people on it. So from chapter 6 all the way into chapter 20, God's judgments just roll out like one long, horrible nightmare. I mean, people have tried to make movies about this sort of stuff, right? And the movies couldn't possibly make it as bad as what reality is going to be. Well, we have three series of judgments. I hope you've heard about these. There's uh, The first one is the seven sealed judgments that Jesus opens, then seven trumpet judgments, and seven bowl judgments that are poured out on the earth. You'll, they're, they're all listed there for you. What is the nature of God's judgment in chapters 6 through 20? Well, when people read about God's judgments, they're often troubled. Some people don't even like the book of Revelation. <laughs> some, people, some people might be too infatuated. Uh, I hope you're well balanced. And, and really, uh, if, if you are troubled, that's probably a good thing in one way. It really makes sense to, to be troubled by all of God's judgments that we see here. Our, our justice, as you and I experience it, is insufficient. The judgments that are handed down by human judges really do nothing for the victims, do they? Uh, also, we need to think about this is that uh, our justice is uncertain. People go to prison sometimes. Sometimes they don't when they should. Uh, and and when, when the criminals do go to prison, it often makes them worse. We don't always catch those who are guilty of their crimes. And when we do, they often get out too early. They don't actually get justice. And when they do get out, they often repeat their crimes. And our justice can even be mistaken. Sometimes people go to prison who are actually innocent. Sometimes innocent people suffer wrongly. And what's the point in all this? Well, in this world, there is no perfect justice. And there is no perfect judge, by the way. And the reason is there, 
that Jesus hasn't come yet. Jesus hasn't come. So when you look at this, we ought to long for the perfect judge who's going to bring the perfect justice. See, Jesus is coming. Someday he's going to come. And when the just judge comes, he's going to mete out justice. And you say, why and how is that possible? Well, he's the only one who is worthy to open the scrolls. Look at chapter 5, verse 9. Chapter 5, verse 9, because it says that they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you, that's Jesus, to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. See, my friends, Judge Jesus is totally adequate for the job, for the job here, unlike human judges. He knows all the facts. He doesn't need a jury. He doesn't, need, he doesn't need to ask questions because he knows our thoughts. He knows everything. He even knows the motives of people's hearts. That's one of the reasons that makes him the perfect judge. But he knows right from wrong. He's able to execute his judgments perfectly. And by the way, this judge does not have a court of appeal. There will be no appeal when Judge Jesus brings his judgments. They will be right the first time. That's the nature of God's judgment. Let's take a look at the next question here. You might ask, well then, how certain is God's judgment? Is it certain? Do we know this for sure? Well, look at chapter 11. Chapter 11. Chapter 11. Again, I'm sorry if you're, if you're wanting some in-depth study here. There's, we can't possibly do that in one message. But I hope as we look at this, it will encourage you to get into the Word of God. In chapter 11, the certainty of God's coming judgment is pronounced here. Look at uh, chapter 11, verse 16. Verse 16, And the twenty-four elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshipped God. Here's what they said. We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came. The time for the dead to be judged and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and the saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Stop there for a moment. See, it's made clear throughout these chapters that no power on earth can prevent God's judgment. Nothing can hinder it, nothing can stop it, nothing can even delay God's judgment. In, in fact, as, as you look at these chapters, even the natural forces and even social forces of the world here are at God's disposal. Even famine and plague do God's bidding. And to see an example of that, look at chapter 11, verse 6. Chapter 11, verse 6. It says, They have the power to shut the sky and no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. That's the, the, the two witnesses here. God's given power to these two witnesses to do this. It says, They have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. So, as you read on again, all creation serves God's call for judgment. Everything is at His disposal. And, and by the way, so complete is God's power that even the extraterrestrial creation obeys His command. And, and we see here that the sun is blackened, the, the moon actually turns red, the stars are falling to the earth. Look at chapter 6 for an example of this. Chapter 6, verse 12. Chapter 6, verse 12. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth. The full moon became like blood, 
and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. You say, well, what's the point? Here's the point, my friends. God's judgment is certain. There is nothing that can delay it. There's nothing that can hinder it. Nothing can stop God's judgment. It's going to happen exactly on time when he wants it, the way he wants it to happen. Nothing will stop it. Well, then you might ask, is God's judgment final? Okay, so the Bible says it's certain, but is it final? Well, look at chapter 11, verse 15. Chapter 11, verse 15. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Notice the key words, how long is he going to reign? What does it say? He's going to reign forever and ever. He's in complete control of judgment here. Let's look at another one. Chapter 20, verse 10. Chapter 20, verse 10. Chapter 20, verse 10. Now, this is talking about the defeat of Satan here, or what he's called as the devil as well. But look at verse 10. It says, The devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Again, notice those words. It's forever. God's judgment's final. There's no appeal. And I hope that gives you some peace in a way. You say, why would that give me peace? Well, life is not a never-ending cycle of suffering. There is light at the end of the tunnel, if you will. History is not on this, this endless treadmill. Like you, you ever seen those mice when they're in their cage and they might put a little wheel in there with the mouse, and you ever seen that mouse trying to run? It's, it's exerting a lot of effort, but it's going nowhere, right? You ever seen that? Life isn't that way. Life is not a treadmill. It's not a wheel. There is, there, it, it is going somewhere. It has a design and a purpose to it. History's focused here on the throne of God, and the judgment of that throne is final. Another question that needs to be answered is this. Does God's judgment produce awe? Does it produce awe in you? Well, it should. And if you ask, well, why should it produce this awe? Well, Revelation's revealing the horror of God's judgment. It's not a pretty sight. Every kind of human, by the way, is going to be horrified on that day. Let me show you an example of that in chapter 6. Chapter 6. Chapter 6, verse 15. Notice the different groups of people here. Verse 15. Then the kings of the earth, and the great ones, and the generals, and the rich, and the powerful, and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of Him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? Well, from supernatural prisons to the abyss, we got plagues to earthquakes, from Hades to the eternal lake of fire. They're all pointing to something. This book is just filled with unimaginable, horrible images. And so if the images are true, which I believe they are, we do not help anyone, by the way, by trying to make these things palatable for them. We're not helping the unbeliever by trying to to, uh, somehow make them less horrible than they really are. Even in our age of overstimulation, I mean, we, we, it's ridiculous how much stimulation we have, right? 
well, anyway, that's, that's another message. But this book should produce awe in us. It should. Another question that needs to be asked is this. Is God's judgment right? Is God's judgment right? Look at chapter 11, verse 16. Chapter 11, verse 16. And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshipped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came. And the time for the dead to be judged and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Then God's temple in heaven was opened. The ark of his covenant was seen within his temple. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hail. What we have here is God's judgment. God's judgments are complete, accurate, they're appropriate. Here's God standing as an eternal, ever-present, ever-truthful witness, as well as an ever-wise, ever-merciful, and ever-just judge. How should you and I respond to this truth? How should we respond? Again, trust God. But, but what specific thing can we trust God for as we see these Horrible images. Trust God for His perfect justice. You can trust God for His perfect justice. Well, so far we've seen a throne. We've seen God's judgment. And much of God's judgment is dark. It's horrible. But the good news is there is, there is light at the end of the tunnel. There are rays of light that are breaking into the darkness. Well, I like, some of you know I like the book, The Lord of the Rings. One of my favorite characters in Lord of the Rings is Sam. I also like Frodo. I know it's kind of hard to see them there, but the guy on the right there is Sam. Frodo's ever-faithful friend who stuck with him through thick and thin, through the good and the bad. And I like the way Sam says it when he talks to Frodo. If you've ever read Tolkien's second book, The Two Towers, it's coming from that book. He says this, It's like the great stories, Mr. Frodo, the ones that really mattered. Full of darkness and danger they were. And sometimes you didn't want to know the end because how could the end be happy? How could the world go back to the way it was when so much bad had happened? But in the end, it's only a passing thing, this shadow. Even darkness must pass. End quote. So Sam was a very encouraging character in the midst of darkness. Somehow he never seemed to lose sight of the light. So my friends, it's important that we not lose sight of the light. In the midst of God's judgment here, there are rays of light. And, and really the important thing is this third image of the Lamb. The Lamb. Remember the very first verse in Revelation says, this is the revelation of Jesus Christ. So let's look to the Lamb. Who is the person of the Lamb? Turn to Revelation chapter 5. Revelation chapter 5. See, <clears throat> earlier we left John in the throne room. Remember John was weeping, he's crying, he's distraught because no one was found worthy to open the the, the seals of this scroll of history. But look what John writes in chapter 5, verse 5. Verse 5. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered, so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. I, I love this scene, because John's told to expect a lion this isn't any lion. This is the lion of the tribe of Judah. And by the way, that's an appropriate 
animal, if you had to pick an animal, that's an appropriate animal to expect, a powerful animal. But notice what John sees in the next verse, verse 6. And between the throne and the four living creatures, and among the elders, I saw, notice it doesn't say lion. It says he sees a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. What a shock. You're expecting a lion, but you get a lamb. It's kind of like the exact opposite. So he's expecting the lion of the tribe of Judah, but John sees a lamb. And notice a few things about this lamb and some important details you don't want to miss. This lamb looks as though it's been slain. But it's not laying down like dead. Notice God describes this lamb is standing. It's not dead. It's alive. And this lamb is being worshipped. So all of these details are all pointing to something very important. You say, what? Why? Well, this lamb is God the Son, Jesus Christ. And if you look what Jesus says about himself in chapter 1, then you'll kind of get the idea here. So look at verse or chapter 1. Chapter 1, verse 18. This is Jesus talking about himself. Chapter 1, verse 18, he says, uh, skip the first phrase there. Jesus says, I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. That's Jesus speaking about himself. Jesus recognizes he, he was the one, the Lamb of God, John says this in his gospel, that Jesus was the Lamb of God who came to take away the sin of the world. He was slain, but he arose from the grave. He conquered Satan, death, and sin. I can't help but wonder if C.S. Lewis must have been thinking about this passage when he wrote the Chronicles of Narnia. It's no surprise I love the Chronicles of Narnia. I've read them to my children. I've read them many times. I was enthralled by them when I was a child. Highly recommend them to you. But in the fifth book of the Chronicles of Narnia, which is called The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, uh, Lewis describes a a scene where these children have kind of come to the edge of their world. And here's what it says. I'm quoting from the book. Between the children and the foot of the sky, there was something so white on the green grass They could hardly look at it. They came on and saw that it was a lamb. The lamb said, Come and have breakfast. Please, lamb, said Lucy, is this the way to Aslan's country? Not for you, said the lamb. For you, the door into Aslan's country is from your own world. As the lamb spoke, his snowy white flushed into tawny gold. And his size changed, and he was Aslan himself, towering above them and scattering light from his mane. End quote. The picture there is from the book. Of course, Aslan, the lion creature, is described by C.S. Lewis as Jesus Christ, the one who is the lamb and the lion. He's both. But now we see here this lamb, he's standing upright. Notice he's described with seven horns and seven eyes. Now, I've seen pictures of that. If you draw that out, that looks really weird, doesn't it? Imagine a lamb with seven horns and seven eyes. You say, what is that all about anyway? Well, you need to understand in the Bible, in Scripture, horns symbolize power. Well, even today we, we, we think of that uh, Often male animals have horns, and they use those to fight each other. And and, and it's the most powerful one that wins who gets all the females, 
right? That's the way God's designed it in his creation. So horns symbolize power. And the number seven is God's wonderful number of completeness, perfection. So what do we have here? We have perfect power, complete power in this lamb. And so he's also having seven eyes, the Bible tells us. So when you put those together, you have this lamb, who is Jesus, who has complete power and complete wisdom. Here's Jesus Christ standing in the center of the throne. He's encircled by the four living creatures. He's encircled by the 24 elders. And let's see what they're all saying here in chapter 5, verse 12. Chapter 5, verse 12. Notice they're saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped him. Why are they worshipping? Why are all these creatures that God has made worshiping Him. What has this Lamb done? Well, if you understand what He's done, you'll understand why they're worshiping Him. But let's look at chapter 5, verse 9. We'll see, why did the elders worship Jesus? Verse 9, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. Why? For you were slain. You were slain. And by your blood, you ransomed people for God. My friends, this is why only the Lamb of God could open the the sealed scroll. Only Jesus is the one who had the authority to fulfill both judgment and redemption. Only Christ is able to purchase lost people for His possession. That's why He's worthy to open the scroll. And so, my friends, if you are a non-Christian, I don't know, I can't see your hearts. But if you're a non-Christian, on the throne of God is a lamb. And this lamb will buy you from your sin, from your greatest problem. But he's also going to be your judge. He was punished for the sins of everybody who, who repents of their sins and follow him as Lord. And so I encourage you to trust him. Flee from your sin. Repent. Change your mind in regards to your sin. See it as God sees it. Put your trust in Jesus alone. My friend, if you're a Christian today, be encouraged by the Lamb who sits on the throne. Look at chapter 7. This is encouraging. Chapter 7, verse 15. Verse 15 says, Therefore they are before the throne of God, and serve Him day and night in His temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. And he will guide them to springs of living water. God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. My friend, how should you respond to this glorious truth? How should you respond? We must trust God for deliverance. Trust God for His deliverance. Well, now we come to the last image in this book. The book of the revelation of Jesus Christ ends with a city. It ends with the eternal state. It ends with the capital city of heaven. A city. Isn't that interesting? The Bible ends with or starts with a garden. But the garden was corrupted. But the Bible ends with a city. And we get to see the one in the city here as well, by the way. So this vision of a city just might be the greatest vision that John ever had. And by the way, it's interesting, John's not seeing disembodied beings who are sitting on clouds playing harps. You ever seen those kind of images? You know, you ever seen these fat little babies with wings and they're 
and they're up there playing harps. You know, that, that's some, some people's idea of heaven. Sad image, isn't it? Now, John, John doesn't see any of that. He doesn't envision people forever reclining in eternal laziness. No, John sees an entirely new creation. By the way, it's primarily a new city, the capital city of heaven here, the new Jerusalem. And there's a few things we see. We're going to look at the good times. We're going to look at the city of God and the city of God's people. But what will the good times be like? There are good times yet to come for those who have put their faith in Jesus Christ. Look at chapter 21. Let's start there. Chapter 21. Chapter 21 talks about the new heaven and the new earth. Verse 1. 21 verse 1. John saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Now, there's so much information here, it's kind of like trying to drink from a waterfall. All right? So let me just give you a few things that I, I, I particularly enjoy from the last two chapters of the Bible. First of all, that in heaven, death is going to be replaced by life. Death is replaced by life. Look at verse 4. Verse 4, it says, He, God, will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. In heaven, the Bible says that night is going to be replaced by light. There will be no more night. Look at chapter 21, verse 23. Look at verse 23 in your Bibles. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. Well, as we read on, we find that in heaven, corruption is going to be replaced by purity. Purity. Look at verse 27. Verse 27. But nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. We also see that in heaven, the divine curse from Genesis chapter 3 is now replaced by eternal blessing. Look at chapter 22, verse 1. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its twelve kinds of fruit yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. So God's presence is in this city. It's, it's remarkably present everywhere. And we see it in several ways. For example, the the, the city's appearance is brilliant. Look at chapter 21, verse 11. Chapter 21, verse 11. It says, Having the glory of God, its radiance, like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. Now, I've put a few pictures on the screen here. These are people trying to somehow envision what the capital city of heaven looks like, well, that's, again, that's indescribable. But it's multicolored. And, and, and God's glory just exudes through everything. The other thing that needs to be mentioned is the city has an unusual shape. It's a giant cube. It's a giant cube. In fact, the dimensions given in our Bibles is 
about 1,400 miles or approximately, well, <laughs> it'd be more than that in kilometers. I'm not sure exactly how big that is, but it, more than that in kilometers. So what we have is, is something that's the same in length, width, and height. A giant cube of approximately 1,400 miles. I'm not sure that that might be around 2,000 kilometers. It is a massive cube. It is the capital city of heaven, the New Jerusalem. And, and by the way, somebody's estimated that that is over 2 million square miles, which would, of course, give plenty of room for all the saints of eternity to live forever. Well, finally, we come to chapter 22. I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but would heaven be heaven to you if Jesus wasn't there? Could heaven possibly be heaven without Jesus? I would say no. I hope you would agree with that. Heaven, I, I can't possibly see heaven being heaven if you can't see God. And I want you to look at chapter 22, verse 4. Chapter 22, verse 4 says, They, that's God's people, will see His face and His name will be on their foreheads. My friends, that's a glorious day to look forward to. It's one that you can look forward to and when you actually get what you want, you will not be disappointed. See, here we have the effects of the fall of Genesis chapter 3 are fully reversed. And, and as a result of that, God is going to bring the children of Adam back into fellowship with Himself. See, Adam had perfect fellowship with God in the garden. Read chapter 1. Read chapter 2 of Genesis. Adam walked with God. He talked with God. He saw God. But Adam's sin separated him from God. But now we have God bringing all of Adam's children back into fellowship with himself. So now we can see God face to face. We can fellowship with him. And to me, that's got to be the greatest blessing of all. So let me ask you this. How should you respond? Trust God for the promise of His presence. Do you believe that's going to happen to you one day? If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, it will. So trust God for the promise of His presence. So my friends, let's end by kind of recapping here for us. What is the message of Revelation? The message of the book of Revelation is this, my friends. We are waiting for the sovereign God to come. We're waiting for Him to come and execute His judgments. We're waiting for Him to deliver us through the blood of the Lamb. In, in one sense, we have eternal life, but the ultimate fulfillment of eternal life is not come yet. But we're also waiting for, for God to bring us into His presence forever. These are the images of the book of Revelation. And so this is where our trust must lie. And so I finish by asking you this, my friend. Is this what you are waiting for? Let's pray.